The reading from the Bible is from Acts 8, 4 through 25. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. It's the word of God. Amen. Take that. Thank you, Emma. Uh, Emma was part of an internship program we have here at Apex called Form, uh, but she was part of it uh, last year. And this past round of Form, Emma was one of the leaders. And um, we're actually we we began Form in October, and we're actually about to wrap up this round of it this coming week. So it's kind of a bit of a bittersweet time after. Uh, the community we have formed. It's just going to look different from here on out. But uh, at FORM, we focus on spiritual formation, leadership development, and missional training in the context of community. And we'll be promoting FORM throughout the summer, and you may be interested in being part of it. But uh, Emma will tell you that her involvement with FORM has kind of launched much of her involvement with uh, Apex these days, as she is now part of an operations team. She has been part of launching a prayer team. She comes to staff meeting every Tuesday. I mean, we can't get rid of her, and, uh, and nor would we want to. She's a, a dear sister to us. But one of the fun things we've done at Forum recently 
is a couple weeks ago, uh, we knew that I would be preaching this passage, and so I assigned them to read the passage ahead of time, and we were going to discuss some of their observations. And so that was just a really helpful conversation for me in terms of helping to, as, as I developed and meditated and solidified some thoughts today. So if I say anything today that is helpful, it probably came from one of the interns. What can a carrot teach us about our hearts? It's probably not the question you were expecting to hear today, but the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon used to tell a story about a, a gardener in a kingdom. And one day this, this gardener grew a huge carrot and he brought this carrot before the king and said, O oh, king, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow and I'd like to offer it to you as a token of my respect and appreciation for you. The king looked and discerned the man's heart and gladly received it and said, thanks. And he said, I see that you are a good steward of the land. And I'll tell you what, I own a plot of land right next to yours. Why don't you take it and grow food on it? So the man left rejoicing. But meanwhile, a, a nobleman in the king's court <clears throat> overheard this and thought to himself, man, if if that's what you get for giving the king a carrot, what might the king give you if you give him something better? So the next day, the nobleman brings in this beautiful black stallion. And he says, oh, king, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. And I would like to offer him to you as a token of my respect and appreciation for you. The king looked, discerned the man's heart, and said, thanks, you are dismissed. The nobleman was perplexed, and he said, the king said, look, the gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself a horse. And what we learn from this story is that we can do something that looks right on the surface, but for the wrong reasons. The important question behind everything we do is the question, why? It's about motives, and motives, of course, spring up from the soil of our hearts. And because of the way that our hearts interact with the external world, our hearts that are always thinking, always interpreting, always believing and desiring, that means that any action that we do, even actions that on the surface seem neutral or even virtuous, can become tainted and sinful depending on what our heart does with it. Say that a woman decides to bake a cake and share it with her friends. In which, by the way, I think it would be a good idea that as soon as it is prudent, we have something like the Great Apex Bake Off. Doesn't that sound fun? It's just, just planting seeds, right? Thanks, Elise. I heard you distinctively there. Yeah. But say this woman bakes the cake for her friends. Is that a good thing? Well, it depends. Why did she bake it? Did she bake it in order to 
serve her friends, to bless her friends, to fill their lives with something good? Did she bake the cake because she loves her friends or did she bake the cake because she wants her friends to love her, to praise her baking skills? Did she bake the cake because last week, Tammy baked a vanilla lemon curd cake that got really good reviews, but they need to know that Tammy's lemon curd vanilla cake is no comparison to her chocolate raspberry truffle cake. They needed to know that she is the superior baker. Did she bake the cake to fill their lives with sweetness or to fill her ego with their praises? Or even something like preaching, which most Christians consider to be a good thing. But if Mike or myself or Jason or Chris stand on the stage and we preach for an identity rather than from an identity, if we preach for an identity as a preacher rather than from an identity as a child of God, then we've missed the point. We go home kicking the dirt, thinking, well, and I got four compliments on my sermon this week. Last time I got five. Doing the, the right thing, but for the wrong reason. Well, today, we'll look at a thing that can be a good thing, just depending on what you do with it. And that thing in the passage that Emma just read is power. Is power a good thing? It can be. For in creation, God gave humanity power. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. He gives them power in terms of authority and power in terms of ability. No other species on the planet was given the ability to shape creation in the way that humanity has been. And so that brings us to our story today. We have here so far... In the, the book of Acts, the, the story's taken place in Jerusalem. But at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so far we've been in Jerusalem, but after this martyrdom of Stephen, and as great persecution broke out against the church, the church began to scatter, guess where? Throughout Judea and Samaria. The story's moving forward. But we see in Samaria... This follower of Jesus named Philip, doing these great signs, casting out demons and healing people. We also run into a man named Simon, Simon the sorcerer. The tradition has called him Simon Magus. And Simon Magus clearly has some sort of power in terms of ability, for the people of Samaria were amazed at the things that he was doing and the magic that he would practice. And perhaps as they gave him their attention, perhaps he also had power in terms of authority and spiritual leadership. They called him the power of God, one who is great. Commentators aren't exactly unified or even sure about what to do with this phrase and what exactly it meant. But Second century Christian writers such as Justin Martyr, who himself was from Samaria, as well as Irenaeus, both indicated that perhaps the people of Samaria revered and worshipped Simon as if he were a god. 
that there, he was a divine figure. In fact, there was a statue in Rome built of him. And Simon himself boasted that he was one who was great. But then Philip comes along, does these great signs and wonders through the power of God, and preaches about the kingdom of God and the good news of the kingdom in the name of Christ. And many believe and are baptized. Simon himself believes and is baptized. And it says that Simon was astonished that he was amazed by Philip. Whereas before, the people of Samaria were amazed at Simon. Simon is now amazed at Philip. It must have been that Philip was doing things that were greater than what Simon's power was able to do. Because if it were a lesser power, Simon would have said, well, that's child's play. If it were an equal power, Simon would have said, oh, we have some competition. Well, anything you can do, I can do better. But it must have been a greater power for him to want to follow Philip around like a shadow. But then we have this instance where people believed and were baptized in the name of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit did not come upon them. Now, clearly this is not about the Holy Spirit's work in terms of conversion, but they must have been expecting some sort of external signs manifested, whatever those may have been. Whatever it was, it was not an ideal situation. So Jerusalem heard about this. They send the apostles, Peter and John, Peter and John come to pray for those. They lay their hands on them, and they receive the Spirit. And it must have been more than something like, well, I feel like I have the Spirit. There must have been something external, something that could have been seen by others. And perhaps what's going on here is the fact that given the previous animosity between Jews and Samaritans that has been gone on for hundreds of years, God wanted to make sure that there would be no division and no question as to whether or not Samaritans had a place at the table and an invitation to the kingdom of God. So a good way to event any question about that it would be to send the witnesses of Peter and John. But at any rate, Simon sees this happen. He sees this power goes to Peter and says, name your price. Give me also this ability that I may have this power so that whoever I lay my hands on will also receive the Holy Spirit. Now, is the desire for the, to be an instrument of the power of God, is that a good thing? That in of itself is a good thing. So what's the problem here? I think we have an indication in the fact that Simon offered money. And when you offer money for something, how are you thinking of that something? You're thinking of it as a commodity, a product. And Simon was used to this as magicians would trade and buy magic formula, formulas from each other. But the Holy Spirit is not a magic formula. But when you treat something as a commodity, who is it for? Yourself. Your purposes. But so far in the book of Acts, the power of God has not been for the carrier's purpose. You know, Philip casting out demons and healing people was not so that he could get money and get fame. The power of God in Philip was for God's purposes and for the good of others. But how do you suppose Simon would use it if he's willing to offer money for this 
commodity. Peter recognizes this and he says to him, your heart, he calls out the heart, your heart is not right before God. There's something else going on here. It seems that for all his life, as Simon had had this power and was called this power, he says, people used to say of me, the power of God and one who is great, but now a greater power has come to town. Well, maybe there's a way for me to get that power so that people will once again refer to me as one who is great. Because in his life, his identity was in having power. It's an identity thing. And likewise, we, whenever we put something as the center of our life, as the ruling thing, we put our identity there. So here we're talking about the power of God versus the God of power. The little g God of power, the thing in Simon's life that ruled him. How does Peter respond? Well, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? He says, he says, may your silver perish with you. To hell with your money. You thought you could buy the power, the free gift of God with money, treat it as a commodity, as if it's yours? You have no part in this ministry for your heart is not right before God. You are full of this toxic poison, full of bitterness, full of gall. You are a slave to iniquity. So you need to repent of this wickedness and pray and perhaps God will forgive you. Now, it's a pretty sharp rebuke. But Peter himself knows what it's like to be sharply rebuked. There's a moment in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirms them and says, well, the son of man will go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and be handed over to the Gentiles and be mocked and spat on and crucified. But on the third day, he will rise again. Peter says, this will never happen to you. What's Peter's issue here? What is it that is ruling Peter's life? It's power. Having things done on his own terms, according to his wisdom and his greatness. This shall never happen to you. This is not my definition of Messiah. But then Jesus responds, meek, mild, sweet, gentle Jesus responds, out of my way, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God. You're obsessed with the thinking of man. And in the same way, in this account, we have Simon Peter saying to Simon Magus, thought you could buy the power of God with money. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Overall, this story is about a man who had a lust for power 
but he was warned and, as someone called him to repentance. And it makes me, and, and that pattern of a story reminds me of another story in the scriptures. I think of a man who lived 600 years before Jesus, not uh, a, a man of Israel, but rather one of Israel's enemies, a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who led Judah into exile. In the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it disturbs him, and he wants to know what the dream means, so he gathers his wise men together, and he says, look, I don't just want to know the interpretation of the dream. I want to know that you're tapping into something real, some real power here, so you need to tell me what the dream was so I can know that what you're telling me is true. The wise men say, who on earth could do this? Well, that doesn't satisfy Nebuchadnezzar. He decides that all, men, all the wise men in Babylon will be killed. What does that say about his <laughs> lust for power? You know, not getting what you want, so you have your whole staff killed? It's a bit of an overreaction, wouldn't you say? Nebuchadnezzar's being a bit of a drama king. Now, some of, some of that was a snarky laugh, but someone was like, yeah, ha, 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 real funny, Chad. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, he, had this, he wanted to have his staff killed, and Daniel learned this. So Daniel asked the Lord to reveal to him the dream, and, so, and the Lord did so for Daniel. So the next day, Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, in your dreams, you saw a statue, a head made of gold, a body of silver, legs of bronze, feet of clay and iron. And in your dream, there was a stone not cut by the hands of man, but it came and shattered the feet and crumbled the entire statue. But the stone grew to be a mountain. He says, here's the interpretation. The metals, the metals of the statue represent the subsequent nations, kingdoms that will rule after you. The stone that grows into a mountain is the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar responds by bowing down to Daniel and saying, surely your God is the Lord of lords, is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, for he was able to reveal to you this mystery. So here Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to see who God is. The message of the dream is that your power does not come from you and nor is your power forever. So it seems Nebuchadnezzar begins to understand who God is, but <laughs> not all the way there. Because in chapter 3, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, he builds a statue. And most commentators believe that that statue was meant to represent himself. And the statue was entirely of gold. Not of mixed metals, but of gold. In other words, the indication is Nebuchadnezzar rules forever. It was a defiant way of making his dreams come untrue. And he commanded that whenever the band would play out, everyone in Babylon would bow to the statue, and anyone who doesn't gets tossed to the furnace. Again, obsessed with power. Where there are three boys from Judah, three young men, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, or the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse the bow. They serve Yahweh. So Nebuchadnezzar is told about this. 
The young men are brought before him, and he is furious. They, again, insist on refusing, insist on not bowing to him. So he has the furnace burn seven times hotter, and he has them taken to the furnace. The furnace was blazing so hot that those who led the young men to the, to the furnace were killed, not by the fire itself, but from the heat coming from the furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were unharmed. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he counts four figures in the furnace. So he calls them out. Not a hair on their head was burned. Not a thread of their clothes was burned, and nor did they smell of smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for he has sent his angel to deliver you. He decreed that no one in Babylon can say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, he's starting to recognize this Yahweh figure is powerful. But then again, in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar once again is disturbed by a dream. The dream of a great tree. The tree provides shade for all the beasts of the earth and its branches are homes is a home to all the birds in the heavens, and it provides food and shelter for all the earth. But a voice from heaven says, cut the tree down, wrap it with a chain of bronze, for he will be driven away from man, and he will be covered with the dew of heaven. He will have the mind not of a man, but of an animal. So once again, Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and talks about his dream. He says, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Where does the power of God come from? God. Power is from God, not yourselves. The command to leave the stump of the tree with the roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent, saying, look, your power is not from you and your power is not for you. Serve the oppressed. Your power is for them. Your power is for God's purposes. The next year, Nebuchadnezzar is walking the roof of his palace. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He's overlooking his kingdom is this not Babylon that I have created with the might of my power for the glory of my great name, for my majesty? As the words were still in his mouth, a voice from heaven came and said, you are cut off from mankind. And he's driven mad and his hair grows like eagle feathers. His fingernails grow like claws. He eats grass like an ox. It's a profound picture of what sin and idolatry does. 
We were made in the image of God and for God. But when we cut ourselves off from that, sin is dehumanizing. And the ironic thing is that when man tries to be God, he becomes less than human. When man serves power, it turns him into a predator. A predator who devours and tramples over those he was meant to serve. But then Nebuchadnezzar's mind, after this seven times, his mind returns to him and his, his kingdom. He was more glorious than even before. And he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. How do we rightly wield the power that God has given us? With humility. Now, humility and low self-esteem are not the same thing. We often think of them as the same thing, but they're not. Someone with low self-esteem can still be obsessed with thinking about themselves. C.S. Lewis says it best when he says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And along with that, I think it's about having an accurate view of yourself. Because is God humble? Yes, God is humble. But does God also know that he is glorious and worthy of praise? Yeah, both things are true. He has an accurate view of himself. He knows his place. And his place happens to be high above us. But humility is about knowing your place. Is there another character in the scriptures who knew their place, who was a bit of the anti-Nebuchadnezzar? I think of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph, who had the ability to interpret dreams, but said to people, do not all interpretations belong to God? And another time, well, God will give the interpretation. And at the end of the story, after his father Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers go to him. These brothers who have beat him, thrown him into a pit, sold him into slavery, and are really responsible for the troubles of the last decade plus of his life. And there Joseph stood with the power to get them back. And they come groveling, have mercy on us, we are your slaves. But Joseph knew his place, and he said, am I in the place of God that I should judge you? He had the power to get revenge, but Joseph recognized what his power was for. He says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good and the saving of many lives. And the rescue of this famine that happened through me through the power that God has given me, Joseph knew what his power was for. He knew his power was not for his own purposes or for his own revenge. His power was for the sake of others and for God's purposes. Now, many of us today have some form of power, whether it's power in terms of 
ability, gifting, skill, or the power of authority. Uh, you're the CEO of your own company. You're the manager of a business. You're a teacher. You're a mentor. You're a parent. That's a form of power. So the question is, how are you wielding that power? Are you wielding it with humility? Do you know that that power is not your own? Let me talk to the, the parents in the room today. Not, uh, well, I mean, parents in terms, your, your, parent, your, your kids are, are still being raised. And I say this as, um, not as an expert, nor as a perfect parent, nor as someone who has all the answers. A lot of these things are the observations and the reflections of my own heart. But what is often our aim in parenting? What is the target? I would argue often, more times than not, our target is the behavior of our children. Because when our children misbehave, they can embarrass us in public. They can annoy us. They can sometimes break our stuff by their misbehavior. So it's really more convenient for us when our children behave. But if we only aim at behavior, have we done our jobs? We also need to aim for the heart that drives the behavior. Because as we learned before, People can become good at doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And your kids can become really good at playing the game, knowing how to avoid getting yelled at, but yet the heart within them is churning and seething. So that when they're no longer under your roof and no longer have to play by your rules, their heart will be led to do what the heart wants to do. But our job is to point them to the fact that their heart needs repaired and we are there to point them to the grace of God that does that heart repair. But by only addressing the behavior, we put a bandaid on the whole thing. So let me ask you this. When your children misbehave, when they disobey you, what's going on in your heart? What's that conversation look like? the audacity of these children who I clothe, who I bathe, who I feed, who I shelter to besmirch my good name by going against my will? Are you kidding me? They have dishonored the name of their father, of their mother. One thing we need to recognize that though we are the earthly authority in the lives of our children, we are not the ultimate authority. Our authority is a delegated authority. When your children rebel against you, their rebellion is not primarily against you. When they rebel against you, they are primarily rebelling against God. And so when your children rebel against you, maybe don't take it so personally, but recognize the fact that there is a disconnect in their heart, that they're in, with their heart, they are not engaging appropriately with the will of God. And instead of you charging in there, defending your own honor, you need to set up an interaction between them and God. 
Because that's the real problem. And that takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of wisdom. It also takes a lot of humility. So for any of us who wield power, where can we get more humility? Well, there are great deposits of humility that can be mined on a mountain called Calvary. Both by the example given to us, but also by the logic. Because Jesus had loads of power, but he knew he wasn't going to use that power for himself or for his own convenience. On the night that he was arrested, Peter takes charge, doing things on his own terms again, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus says, do you not think that I could call a legion of angels to come and rescue me? The issue here isn't power. Jesus did not use power for his own sake. He was the only one powerful enough to break the power of sin and to take it to the grave. Jesus used his power not for himself, but for the sake of the powerless. But then the logic. If we survey the cross, if we allow ourselves to use our imaginations and to see the innocent Son of God nailed bleeding, twisted, tortured, distorted. And we recognize that that is a punishment that fits our rebellion. That we are utterly exposed by the cross. That the worst rumor that could be ever whispered about us is megaphoned at the cross that it's worse than you think? Can we look upon that and think in our hearts, I am the great one? But at the same time, we don't take that in despair and feel guilty because at the same time that's happening, the cross also exposes how much we are loved. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him for us, how will he not also give us all things? You are loved by God more than you can imagine. So here's the logic. Was Jesus precious to God the Father? Yes. Did God give up Jesus for your sake? Yes. Therefore, you are precious to God. And that's worth pointing out because we go after power to be in control. And we want control because, let's face it, we don't always trust God. And we don't always trust God because we don't always believe that God actually loves us. I think that's worth saying again. We go for power because we want to be in control. We want to be in control because we don't always believe, we don't, because we don't always trust God. And we don't always trust God 
because we don't always believe that God actually loves us. Am I the only one? So I think what we need is to revisit that mountain, recognizing that the mountain means we're not that great, but we're also incredibly loved. And that we don't have to scrounge for power for another identity other than the fact that we are a child of God. If we had any indication, any clue of how much God loves us, we wouldn't ask for anything else. So today, I want to invite you to respond. If you have recognized maybe a need in yourself that maybe you've recognized more and more, you've, you've been going for control, you've been going for having things on your own terms, or you just recognize that you don't always trust God, you don't always have a full sense of God's love for you, we invite you to come and pray. We invite you to this space in front of the stage with your hands to receive just for a fresh sense of the love of God. And the prayer team will come as an ally to pray with you. But I'm going to pray. The band will come up. And as they pray, you're welcome to come and use this space. Respond with your body to receive a fresh sense of the love of God. Shall we? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the most high in heaven who gives the kingdoms of the earth to who he to who he wills you are power and you are love lord and we know that your kingdom rule is about giving your people authority and power but not for their own purposes but for yours so it may be god that we're asking things from you. We're asking for abilities. We're asking for positions of authority. We ask for the power that through our prayers, others will be healed. But maybe you know <clears throat> that that would go straight to our heads. So Father, grant us the humility that we need. Grant us the humility to know that power is from you. It's for you. It's through you. But as we are humbled. Let us be affirmed in our love for you so that, and your love for us so that we can trust you and let go of our need for control and power on our own terms. In the name of Jesus.